Have you ever wondered what happened to the legendary Chuck Norris? I recently saw a health video he made and I was surprised. He's in his 80s and still seems to have his energy and health. He says he's even stronger, has more stamina, and plenty of energy left over for his grandkids since making one simple health change that helps his digestion and nutrition. He says he still feels like he's in his 50s. His wife made the same change and she's never felt better. She says she feels 10 years younger and she has energy all day. Many of us do not include the fruits, vegetables, and other herbs that increase health and energy in our own diets. Chuck Norris made a special video that explains how he incorporated these things with one simple product. You can watch it by going to mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. It may change your approach to your own health. Once again, that's mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is once again Truth Script Tuesday. We only have two articles today, so it should be a shorter episode, but they're good articles. I'm looking forward to getting into them. Uh, most of you know that it is still summer where you are, and I live in the, well, close to the Northeast, close enough. And uh, it, it switched today, so that's why I have my flannel shirt on if you're watching, because it did switch. It's it's still nice. You could still, you could still go outside with a t-shirt if you want, but uh, if you're not uh, being active, you might actually get a little chilly uh, in, in the evening, which is when I'm recording this. So uh, things are, are changing uh, and I'm looking forward to it. That means the fall retreat's coming up for TruthScript and you can go sign up for that. Um, the best place probably to go for that is OvercomingEvilConference.com, OvercomingEvilConference.com. And we're now, we're less than a month away. We are, we are uh, one day less than a month away. From the retreat it's on the 21st of next month and there's there's a, a lot of information on that website overcoming uh evilconference.com if you want to see more you can do that and i look forward to seeing you there um i would just recommend if you're going to come because i've had several people come to me and say john uh i'm gonna come um make sure that you sign up because it uh, i I'm, i will try to keep this open as, as long as I can. I know generally it's a week before when I, I have to give them the final count, but it makes it a lot easier for us and it ensures that you will have a spot in case there um, are problems with the amount of room we have. So you're, you're going to want to sign up uh, now if you're on the fence. OvercomingEvilConference.com. Uh, More information is there. You can also send an email to info at truthscript.com if you have questions. I just had actually someone this morning uh, send me an email and say, uh, what about carpooling from Ohio? And I was able to go to the website and look and see, yep, there is someone coming from Ohio and they have extra seats in their car. So, uh, we're answering questions like that. And, uh, hopefully, uh, that helps everyone out there. All right. Well, um, uh, just a few other reminders re really quick before we get started. Uh, if you go to truthscript.com, and you scroll to the bottom, uh, there is a uh, publish uh, tab. If you want to write for TruthScript, some people ask about that, click on that tab. And many of the people that write for us are, are just uh, ordinary people. 
but some of the best articles, it's funny to me, uh, I, I knew this was the case. There's all these hidden gems out there. Some of the best articles come from people that they're not even maybe pastors or they don't have a white collar job. Sometimes uh, it's people who uh, otherwise you probably wouldn't hear from them much. And they're uh, writing in. And that's not everyone, but that but there are people who who uh, have written in and, and written really good articles. And so um, the guidelines are there. And if you want to contribute, if, if the uh, you, you think the Lord wants you to take some of his money, right? It's because it's not our money. We are the stewards of it. But uh, I know what people mean. I know, I know my money, right? But, but it, it's ultimately the Lord's. And if you think that the Lord wants you to use some of your money that he's entrusted to you to uh, bless Truth Script, it is a 501c3. You do get a tax write-off. You can go to Donate, Donate tab, scroll to the bottom, and, uh, and you can help us out there. Okay. Well, um, I think that's everything. <laughs> Let's get started with the articles for today. We have two of them here. I've uh, I've had my head buried in the last two days, just a little personal update, I suppose, here on um, the 1607 project, which is th th that's another pot I have my hand in, which I have too many of them. But this is a documentary on uh, the founding of the United States. And uh, how did we get here really is the question. How do we get to where we are today? And so, um, anyway, 1607project.com, if you want to look into that more. That has nothing to do with True Script, but figured I would let you know that's what I'm doing. And um, that's why you didn't hear from yesterday, because I was busy editing, and uh, it's going to be great. But anyway, let, let's talk about True Script stuff, since that's what we're here for today. Um, what does it mean to enjoy God? What does it mean to enjoy God is the article by Justin Puckett. And I'm going to read for you this article. We're going to uh, go through, I think, most of it here, if not all of it, and um, uh, just talk about what this means. Uh, Justin Puckett's a Bible teacher at New River Baptist Church in Tifton, Georgia. I don't know where Tifton is. I don't. I don't that must be a smaller town. Or I mean, I've been through Georgia, but I, I don't recognize that name. Um, but anyway, he writes, Many of us who are Reformed in our theology, yes, even us Baptists, See, there's already controversy, and I haven't even finished the first sentence. <laughs> some of the Presbyterians out there, and uh, some of the Episcopalians, and some of the Lutherans. Well, are Lutherans even Reformed? I mean, they are. They're obviously, Martin Luther, but you know, do they think of themselves that way? But anyway, they all they all look at the Baptists kind of. They, they give us strange looks. We'll put it that way. Anyway, he says, he says we're Reformed though. Okay, there's Baptists who are Reformed, and that's true. The original Baptists were. I mean, they they really were. Uh, Anyway, th that group can recite the first question of the Westminster Confession in our sleep. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We can wax eloquently about the glory of God and his attributes, loving kindness, mercy, and even the glory of his wrath and justice. Yet when we get to the second part of that answer, our voices trail off into an inaudible mumble, and we become uncomfortable. Why is that? Part of this, I believe, is due to our understanding of man. We believe that man is totally depraved. Romans 3.10 is our life verse. And we will declare this biblical truth from the rooftops, that all of man's thoughts and intentions are polluted and tainted with the sin of pride and prejudice. So when we consider this sinful, depraved, and prideful man enjoying a most holy and perfect God, something inside of us cringes. I believe the root of this 
to be an overemphasis upon the unregenerate man and forgetting, even neglecting the change that is wrought in the regenerated man. Now, if, if uh, some of you will remember, we did, we, we had a, an article, Danny Steinmeier, actually, Pastor Danny Steinmeier wrote it on, uh, it, it, it was about Shakespeare. It was about the play Hamlet, but he talks about how man is made in God's image. And he talks about how uh, man also has a sinful nature and that uh, there is a tendency, I, I think, if he didn't say this, he said it in so many words, there is a tendency to overemphasize um, the in, in reform circles, especially that depravity, right? And, um, and maybe overemphasize isn't even the word, but just to focus on it to the detriment of of the other, uh, the, the, the good instincts that actually God has given to all men. Uh, there, there are good things there. They're not, they don't accomplish heavenly good. They don't please God. They're not done for the right motivation if they're done apart from faith in Christ or at least gratitude to God. But there, there are things like feeding your children, right? That, 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 that's a good thing. And God, God uh, gives that to people. Anyway, this article is a really good accompany, uh, I guess, complimentary art, uh, article to, to that particular one, because in this article, uh, the emphasis is on what we are in Christ after being redeemed. So, you know, not only is there a danger, uh, and, and there's ditches on both sides, but not only is there a danger in the more reformed evangelical world to focus too much on depravity to, uh, to the extent that we forget that we're made in the image of God and other people are made in the Im image of God, but we can also do it to the extent, and this is even worse perhaps, that we forget about the fact that we are saved individuals, that we're part of God's family, that he's redeemed us, that he's given us new desires, that we're on our way to heaven, that there, there's all these blessings for us. We th That is, uh, my wife calls it the pit. That is not, uh, th that cannot be taken into the pit with us. And you know the pit. Many people, many people like to sit in the pit. Uh, I don't like to sit in the pit, but there was a time in my life, I suppose, that I did more so. And just think, man, I'm so terrible. I'm just so awful. Um, yeah, yeah, we are. Um, get over it, right? God, God, actually, uh, he, there, there is a sorrow, but then that sorrow turns to gladness because God has decided in his sovereign will to, to save individuals who are, uh, are sinners, uh, have uh, filthy sin that they commit against the God of the universe. And yet they're redeemed, they're changed, they have an alien righteousness, they're uh, being sanctified. So th that's what this article is about. And he says, earlier this year, I was preparing a sermon on Romans 5. And as I was reading through the book of Romans while studying the grammar of the passage, two things suddenly hit me about a common trend in Paul's letters. First, he wrote to and about the saints in such and such a city. As born-again believers, we are declared saints before God. We are set apart, consecrated, and holy. What does this mean? So, yeah, the word saint. We're set apart. We're different. There's a special purpose that we have in Christ. It says, throughout the Old Testament, we see many profane, simple objects declared to be holy, dirty, uh, sorry, dirt, bread, incense, lampstand, altar, tent, etc. However, those ordinary objects were only declared to be holy because God had called them to be set aside for his purposes. This is an interesting thing, you know, and I think dirt is probably referring to Moses, right? The, the place where he's standing is holy ground. 
It's holy dirt right there. And he did this because God is holy, and they were to be set apart and used in his presence for his purpose. Likewise, the regenerated soul is no longer profane and common, but has been made holy in Jesus Christ by the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit of God, the common, ordinary man is used and energized to do the will of God for his purposes. Philippians 2, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So when we think about man enjoying God forever, it is not the image of the sinful, rebellious soul who hates God in his ways. It is the redeemed who have been joined to the Son, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and reconciled to the Father. Now, secondly, he says, Paul speaks of the reality of this new transformation and our peace with God as a done deal. In other words, this is accomplished already. This isn't, we're not in this uh, stage of, 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 uh, lacking assurance as to whether or not this will take place. It will, it is, and it has. And, and there's, there is an already not yet component, but he says, this is clearly seen in the tense of the verbs Paul uses in Romans five. We were weak, ungodly enemies of God, past tense. We are now, present tense, and have been, past tense, strengthened, justified, and reconciled through Christ's work upon the cross. Again, in Ephesians 2, we formerly, past tense, walked according to the course of the world. Uh, and we were, past tense, without Christ and alienated from the people of God. So even in the verbs Paul decides to use, you can see this truth come out that we are righteous before God. We are present by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. You are not who you once were. No longer are you dead, rebellious, unholy, unrighteous, and godly sinner, but a living, holy, righteous, obedient, and godly saint. This is why when we sin, we are acting out of character. It is contrary and destructive to our nature and who we are in Christ. That is why James 3.10 says, from the same mouth, blessings and cursing. Brothers, these things ought not to be. It's antithetical to who we are and who Christ has made us to be. Like honey that is bitter, a sinning saint is not uh, only contradictory, but wrong. Now, of course, the questions come immediately about, okay, then why do I still sin, right? That's, that's the first thing. Why do I still sin? And, and, he, and he tries to answer this. He says, the problem we run into is the fact that we still sin and do not act contrary to our new status. It is the great bane of the Christian existence. And he quotes Romans 7, where Paul says, For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Sin will ruin our enjoyment of God, whether that be unrepentant, persistent sin in our life, or the over-introspection of sin. I want you to hear this clearly. The over-introspection of sin in our hearts. Too much time spent upon sin that Christ has already forgiven, breeds guilt and shame, robs us of joy, and makes us reluctant to come before God. It keeps us away from the only one who can heal the wounds of past sin and purify our current corruption. Enjoying God is God. And, and he says this, he says, enjoying God starts with enjoying the privilege he has given to us in Christ. So there is a positional righteousness we have. That's what theologians call it. And, and we are positioned in such a way that we are righteous before God because of what Christ has done. His uh, the, the great transfer, he, he took our sins on the cross, and then he gave us his righteousness. And, and so that's what God sees. That's what uh, we're going to be judged by as believers in Christ Jesus. Not our works, not uh, what we uh, believe even in the sense that uh, the, 
We're not going to be judged uh, based on how the the extent to which we have um, uh, authentically and you know really meant. Uh, I'm thinking of the people who pray prayers all the time, saying, "Lord, if I wasn't sincere last time, help me to be sincere." It's not our sincerity, right? It is it is the work of Christ that saves. This is hard for some people to get. It's it just goes against tendencies that we have, our sinful tendencies. We, we, we want to do it on our own, right? So, so he says, um, we have this positional righteousness. Sure, we still sin at times. Uh, with that We're being sanctified, though. We're changed. We're different. And this process is taking place, and the process is already good as done, though, uh, that we, we are conforming more and more into Jesus Christ. Enjoying God starts with enjoying the privileges he has given us. Ephesians 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. What blessing has he blessed us with? Unlimited access to him. It talks about the veil being torn when Christ died between God and man in the temple. Let us draw near, he quotes Hebrews, to, to the throne of grace. He has given us spiritual gifts through his Holy Spirit to serve him in his church, gifts and works he has created for us beforehand. He has placed us in his body. This is, the, as, uh, as some people would call this, this is, uh, some young men especially, this is a white pill. This is, this is an encouraging article. I mean, look at all the things that you have. You, you're placed into a body. Uh, you, um, you have people to encourage you. You encourage others. Uh, there's discipline there. Uh, we to, to neglect, he says, so great a means of grace and privilege is not only unloving towards ourselves, but we desperately need them, but unloving towards the one who died and gained them for us. In short, God has given us himself. The only source of true blessing, peace, and satisfaction. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the rock of my heart and my portion forever. Before our conversa- uh, conversion, he says, we sought these things in the world only to be like salt water. Not only did the world not satisfy us, but made us more thirsty. It was a drink that would ultimately have led to our death had we not been given a drink from the rock. The bitter waters of Mara have been made sweet. And he quotes uh, another passage from Song of Songs, and he closes with this, though. He says, he is, is not something, meaning God, we must carefully ration for fear of running out. No, there is enough for us to not only glorify him, but enjoy him forever. This is really well written. Um, and uh, you know, I think this might be the first time I've, I've read anything by Justin Puckett, but really well done. So uh, that brings us to our next article, uh, which is a different topic, is the let people who do what they want as long as no one gets hurt, a Christian sentiment. And in this line, I'm going to talk uh, just briefly to, to frame this because um, it is relevant. Uh, this morning, a number of people, I had three people, I think, send me Oliver Anthony, the guy who wrote the hit song, Rich Men North of Richmond. First time in history that someone topped the billboard top 100 charts from obscurity. He never, he didn't even climb the charts. There was no climb. It was just number one because he recorded videos on his cell phone camera. And, and it's just amazing. It's an amazing story. But Oliver Anthony was on a, a an interview and I didn't see the whole interview. I just saw a clip from it. And, um, and most of the things I've seen coming from Oliver Anthony are really good. I mean, he read a whole chapter from Ecclesiastes last Saturday at, at one of his shows, but um, I mean, my expectations, though, aren't like I'm not looking at him as he, he's going to save us all or he's going to, 
you know, for our political situation. He's, he's an artist. He's a musician. He's a normal guy. And, uh, and that's really, you know, I don't expect more from him, but some people apparently I think do. And, um, and he was on camera saying something to the effect of, uh, that diversity is our strength. And that, um, that's one of the things that we got to do is get back to, um, this, uh, a unity, but a unity in diversity because, uh, it, p- people are being divided against one another unnecessarily. And if they just understood diversity was our strength, I guess they wouldn't be divided, that kind of thing. They would realize we need each other, okay? Now, um, people are criticizing this because they were saying Oliver Anthony is the working class man's hero. And, uh, and you know, did Christianity play into that? I don't, I don't think as much. I think it was more just, hey, he's a conservative. Uh, so why is he parroting this liberal claptrap? Well, that liberal claptrap was drilled into each of us. I mean, I was homeschooled. I was, uh, I mean, I was involved in the community, I suppose. I was in sports and things. But um, I was, uh, I had a good education, I would say. Compared to my friends and my neighbors uh, who didn't have the kind of education, who weren't homeschooled, uh, at least in the area that I live. I'm not saying you have to be homeschooled at all. I, I think I had a pretty good education. And I, you know, I was, I was pretty insulated from, some of the the negative things uh, that other people in my neighborhood had to deal with. Yet, it doesn't really matter. I was still, I mean, it was able to penetrate past everything, all the good things to to get to me. Um, I knew this early on, that diversity was our strength. I, I posted about this on Twitter the other day, that diversity is our strength, and you can be anything you want to be. I mean, it, it's because it's in all the the television programs. It's, it's everywhere you turn, those, those two lies really were present there diversity is not our strength actually it's what's leading to our downfall um it, it and that's it's multiculturalism that's that's really what that means uh and of course you can't be anything you want to be uh you should aspire you should invest your abilities in the things that will achieve the highest good but that does not mean you can be anything you personally want to be uh as, as if your desires are are somehow there's a requirement that the creation bends to your desires. So anyway, to get into the article, um, the, the, these kinds of phrases, these framings, these, these assumptions, I think a lot of Christians have, and they don't realize it. And it contradicts things they say they believe from Scripture, but they don't realize it contradicts. And, and that's many of us. I'm sure there's things I believe that contradict themselves, and I just haven't figured it out yet. I haven't noticed the contradiction. Uh, that's something that is very common for Christians. I know Christians who, I believe they're saved. I believe they love the Lord, but they still hold on to even uh, views about you know things like evolution, or um, I, I would say even views about like uh, decisional regeneration and things like that. Which which I would I would trace. I would say that you know you're if you take that to its logical conclusion, you're going to wind up in heresy land. Because it's not Christ who is saving you. There's a synergistic thing going on there. But uh, to, to just pick one example, but you know, God, God in His grace will um, allow people who are ignorant or just haven't worked it out or you know, whatever the case may be to hold contradictory positions on certain things. 
uh, and, and without even knowing it. Maybe it's passed down by tradition. So I'm not getting into all the specifics because I know there's exceptions here. But uh, I, I do think, though, that um, that is a common thing. And it's good for us to be challenged on these things. It's good for us to be aware where those things can come up. And this is a big one right now. So this article, fairly relevant. Starts off this way. Dr. Bodie Bauckham recently spoke in Moscow, Idaho, on the great heirs confronting the church. And he read Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to your husbands. And he said, we can just stop right there. We can stop right there. We're already at war. We're already at war with our culture, right? I didn't even finish the verse and we're already at war with our culture. Bauckham then identifies feminism, cultural Marxism, same-sex marriage as aspects of our culture that conflict with this verse and its implications. He is correct, of course, but Conservative Christians already recognize these movements as alien and hostile. When Bauckham warns in so many words that the enemy is outside the gates, he rallies a receptive audience. It is well for him to extort, exhort, not to extort, to exhort us to vigilance in standing our ground. Lord knows we need it, but I wish to raise the alarm about a far more insidious part of our culture, which is not only inside the gates, but deep in our minds, embedded like a malignant tumor that grades our ability to think clearly about moral issues. I mean the liberal idea that everyone has the right to do as he pleases, so long as all parties consent. Or as the occultists put it, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. What is good is defined subjectively by everyone for himself, while evil is defined objectively as a non-consensual harm. This idea grew out of Northwestern Europe in concert with the philosophical, political, and economic developments of the last several centuries. Uh, I would think that would be Germany primarily, but anyway, I, I don't know. I don't know who, what philosophers he's primarily thinking of here. Enlightenment humanism with individual liberty as ultimate moral law gradually settled at the bedrock of Western civilization. Thanks to its complete uh, compatibility with a market-based multicultural democratic order that harm harmonizes diverse and competing interests. This is already a great article. I'm, I'm really liking this. Uh, the, I mean, he's already thinking deeper than I would say most of the Christian blogs out there. Uh, you're not going to see this kind of analysis, even though I think it's, it's, it's accessible. You're just not going to see it on most of the pop blogs. They're not going to talk about this and it's worth talking about. What do we really live in? What is, what's the water we swim in? It is this market-based multicultural democratic order. That is what it is. In the West and in America particular, and, and by the way, I should just say something because I'm, I'm anticipating some of the more libertarian-minded people are going to say, it's not market. Look, it, it, it's, um, it used to be called commercialism. Now it's called capitalism. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that the free market is actually in effect what's happening before our eyes. What it means is that we look at everything with dollars and cents. And it, it means that we want to do, even if it's um, ill-advised, we want to do what's best for the market. And there are obviously Keynesian approaches that are not good for the market, but the, the idea is the prioritization here. It is a market-based multicultural democratic order. In the West and in America, particularly the ethic of individual autonomy, is assumed without question across the political spectrum. From do your own thing and my body, my choice on the left to uh, don't tread on me on the right. It has become, uh, and, and by the way, I love the fact, I should say that he used the word autonomy instead of individualism. 
this is the study. If you if you read like a Gospel Coalition article, I guarantee they're if they tried to say something similar ish, <laughs> they're going to go after individualism, and it's murky. You don't really know. He's going after really the root issue here, which is autonomy. <laughs> my body, my choice. Um, to don't tread on me on the right. It has become a pervasive and omnipresent uh, that we forget. It's historically aberrant and culturally unique. And by the way, I should say, don't, I, I'm qualifying so many things here. I guess I probably should just let the article speak, but um, but I have too many thoughts. I, I need to share some of them. The don't tread on me thing. I mean, originally, I, I think there's, there's a case to be made here that uh, this was don't trample over the sovereign co colonial governments. Don't do that. Uh, it's, it's become, though, I think he's right that it's become more than that. It's become anytime there's ever a challenge to something that as a conservative you don't want to do, that becomes a moral justification. And even if it's the right stand to make, that, that really shouldn't be the moral justification that just don't tread on me or come and take it or whatever. Like th there's, there's a place for it. It's just not, it, 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 the justification must come from something greater than the, the slogan. In fact, social psychologists have coined the term weird, Western educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. It's an acronym precisely because it is so unusual. Um, furthermore, in mistaking our socially conditioned moral sentiments, which belong to a particular time and place for eternal and universal truths that hold at all times and all places, we find ourselves obligated to enlighten a darkened world. This manifests as a continual dredging up revision and judgment of historical transgressions in time and as a crusade to export democracy, make the world safe for human rights and proclaim the social justice gospel in space. This guy gets it. I have to say this guy really does. Uh, since liberalism abolishes all distinctions and levels everyone to the same status as individual, it implies a radical equality resembling that of the church in Christ. Uh, but since God is missing from the picture, it is counterfeit. A Christianity without Christ, like all successful counterfeits, it has gained currency due to a superficial similarity with the genuine article. And I have, I, I got to say, I have been coming more and more to this. I think uh, reading some, some of the critiques of modernity from agrarian writers, and then I, I read a book called The Demon and Democracy, and I've, I'm really starting to see more clearly. It's coming into focus that not only was you know, the social justice gospel was easy for me to see. I've been trained as a political conservative my whole life. At least I, I my parents were that way. And so, you know, I was easy to see it. And this is has not been as easy to see because I'm living in it more. Uh, I some of these things I I believe in and uh, not even even if I'm unaware of it, there's like a loyalty that I have to some of these I these beliefs that I. I, I shouldn't, and I'm starting to shed some of those more so. Uh, I, I some of them I think I instinctively rejected, but I didn't know why, and so I'm doing that more and more and more. But the, one one of the things I'm coming to realizing is exactly what the author here says that liberalism itself functions as a religion, and in fact, it's so similar to it, it, I don't even know if you can keep them distinct: the social justice religion and liberalism. There are separations, there are differences. Um, there is this neutrality that liberalism kind of uh, wants to maintain, but I am seeing more and more though that they they help each other, they work off of each other. There's there's room that's made in society for social justice stuff to come in because of liberalism, and then liberalism uh, eventually adopts 
the premises of the social justice religion. Uh, you can see this easily with just something as simple as the LGBTQ movement. Like just a few years ago, uh, classic liberals, people who said they were classic liberal would say like, you know, Glenn Beck would say he's a classic liberal. He would say things though, like uh, same sex marriage. He, he, he opposed it essentially. He at least gave some pushback. And then I want to say about maybe 10 years ago that it was more, well, we should, we should just get the government out of the way. Right now, now I think he's kind of realized what happened, but there's still this kind of neutral ground he wants where you can have same sex uh, couples pursuing a marriage license. You can have heterosexual couples pursuing a marriage. It doesn't really matter. Uh, as long as you don't force me and my church to do right, because it's, it's about me and what and it's not about how God actually wants society to function according to his natural order. So the author here says um, it can flexibly accommodate a wide range of moral tenets and imperatives. Well, I submit to your husbands, for instance, can be expressed within a consent based framework by asserting that wives sign up to submit in the same way that military recruits voluntarily forfeit their rights during service. Likewise, abortion may be opposed by asserting the right of the unborn to life. Although, since rights belong to persons, the debate devolves into the question of personhood and its beginnings. Thus, for a long time, uh, liberals with Christian sensibilities have been able to reconcile the two faiths. However, culture, and I think that's exactly what's happened. Uh, and now the, the, everything's coming unwound, and it, it's, they're not able to do it anymore. Cultural changes sometimes force matters to a head and expose a fundamental rift, the resolution of which plays out according to an oft-observed pattern. Conservative liberals, conservative liberals, right, who, who cling to the vestiges of a pre-liberal tradition out of custom and habit, at first protest the incipient changes. But because their opposition is based on a preference for the familiar and established, they become accustomed to new norms with the passage of time. In the age of television and social media especially, it does not take long for the initial resistance to imbibe new attitudes through repeated exposure and the impulse to conform. This is kind of like the boomer con uh, phrase that's thrown around a lot. Someone's a boomer con because they accept the post-World War II consensus. It's, it's, it's not true conservatism. It's, it's, it's a conservatism that wants to conserve the last iteration of liberalism. The conservative liberal is never able to mount a principled defense because in principle he is a liberal. Eventually he openly embraces his true faith, shedding Christian trappings as so much excess baggage. Time and again, we have seen leading figures in church and state come out and declare their allegiance to the liberal religion, typically in response to critical issues that reveal a great chasm fixed between it and the scripture. Ted Cruz, a Republican, this actually, I covered this on the podcast. Do you remember this? When, when Ted Cruz condemned the Uganda law that prescribed the death penalty for homosexual acts with minors and homosexual acts knowingly carried out with the risk of HIV infection. Uh, Cruz called the law an abomination and a human rights abuse. His sharp choice of words was from Leviticus 18.22, marks an unmistakable dividing line and leaves no doubt about his loyalties. After all, individuals have the right to do as they please. Who are we to say what consenting adults may not do in the privacy of their bedrooms or on the street in broad daylight or before groups of small children? As progressive soldiers march ever onward along the path of depravity, war clouds seem to be gathering around the sexualization of children. Even now, the cloud is being prepared. Gender ideology in school, surgical and hormonal interventions, suggestive themes in media, graphic depictions in sex education, family-friendly drag and pride events. 
and the creeping normalization of minor attracted persons all serve to inculcate the view of children as sexual beings. Given the additional premise that children are individuals with a power to consent, it follows that consensual sex with children is both appropriate and morally justified. Now, this is where it's going to get, he's going to step on some toes, and I want you to keep listening. Uh, Don't turn it off because you're offended about who he goes after. Consider whether it's true. He says, sensing the urgency and underlying logic of this situation, Joel Berry of the Babylon Bee writes, Christians had better start researching and preparing robust defenses of the age of consent from history and scripture, and they need to start yesterday. Here we see the character of the Christian with liberal sensibilities, who retains Christian commitments while remaining within the liberal moral frame. Now, why do you say that? Well, this is why. He will, if possible, defend Christian positions within a system of autonomy and consent. But wherever the system contradicts scripture or produces absurdities, he abandons it in favor of deeper convictions of the heart. Unmoored from the liberal system, therefore, yet lacking anchorage in a Christian moral groundwork, the Christian with liberal sensibilities finds himself cast adrift, unable to justify the tenets of his faith, except by meekly pointing to scattered passages in the Bible. Let me read that again, that quote, Christians had better start researching and preparing robust defenses of the age of consent from the history and scripture, and they need to start yesterday. So um, age of consent is what he's trying to defend here. It's, it's age. How do we prevent this evil? We're going we're gonna to put a bulwark here, a, a defense, a shield around age of consent. Um, so it's still trying to operate within this. It's consent that gives the moral authority for whether an act is permissible or not. What if scripture appear, appeals, uh, appears to be silent on the, some controversy? What if, for example, experts agreed and science affirmed that children as young as three can indeed consent to sex? What argument, what argument is he going to use then? He, doesn't, he, he could dispute the premise, or he could grasp for a verse like Luke 17 too, which assumes what he wishes to prove. But in no case could he argue an alternative framework that aligns naturally with Christian moral intuitions. Now, I, I, I wish that I had all of the scriptures memorized, but I don't have Luke 17 to memorize. So let's see what it says. Uh, is Okay, so this is, I do, I do know the scripture. It is better if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the sea if he uh, causes a little one to stumble. So that's the scripture he's appealing to there. Uh, so he says, it is bad enough that the Christian with liberal sensibilities is off balance and tactively disadvantaged with respect to apologetics and the cultural world. Worse still is double-mindedness. It's psychologically corrosive and demoralizing. He is apt to feel embarrassed and ashamed, not because scripture opposes the culture, but because he opposes himself. Reflecting this pathetic state, his leaders can be heard to utter dismal encouragements. Look, you don't have to like what the Bible says. You don't have to agree with it, but just accept it, okay? Submit to it and trust God. Meanwhile, ever theological conservatives are instinctively drawn to positive uh, positions, rather, they oppose. Mike Winger, a Calvary Chapel-affiliated pastor whose popular YouTube channel is committed to thinking biblically, recently took up the egalitarian versus complementarian debate on women in ministry. While Winger affirms that Scripture is complementarian and bows to it dutifully, he admits that he actually wanted to become an egalitarian before studying the issue. Is it any wonder Winger is, like the majority of Orthodox, conservative, faithful, Bible-believing Christians in America today, a Christian with liberal sensibilities? What would it mean for us to be Christians with Christian sensibilities instead? What if we could feel at home and ease in our faith with out controversies, tensions, or discomforts. 
What if we could preach unvarnished and unashamed without apologies, preambles, disclaimers? What if Christian attitudes, opinions, and judgments came to us as second nature? What if we were acculturated into a Christian moral framework rather than a weird modern liberal one? Then our moral intuitions and reasoning would be at peace once again, and we would cease to be divided against ourselves. Therefore, let us unearth and examine the cherished assumptions we have inherited from our civilization. Let us demolish every towering edifice built upon the satanic foundation, do as thou wilt. Rather, let us build anew, that we may stand on a solid, mutually reinforcing structure grounded firmly in divine order and purpose. Let us plant uh, the first and greatest commandment that our posterity may sit in the shade of what is noble, true, beautiful, and good. This is really, really well done. I'm impressed by this article. Marcus Henry is a, a software developer. There you go. With a background in philosophy and the classics. He lives with his wife and children in the woods of Northern California. I hope he writes for us some more. All right. Well, that's it for Truth Script Tuesday. I hope that was uh, helpful for you. And uh, more, uh, obviously, more is coming. I do plan to have another True Script Tuesday next week. Um, appreciate all uh, everyone out there who is listening. I hope you're enjoying, uh, if you are in an area similar to mine, the seasonal switch that's happening. God bless. Bye. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.